All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, two guests. They've authored together a book that has been recently published. The title of the book is Box Full of Nightmares, Terry Hobbs's Personal Memoirs on the West Memphis Three Murders. It was written by Vicki Edwards, who joins us tonight, but also the person who the book is about, and it's Terry Hobbs. And it's very personal. I enjoyed it. I read it within 24 hours. I read it with great interest. I think it's essential reading for anybody who really wants to understand this entire saga that unfortunately is still continuing about the West Memphis Three. And we can, can talk about recent developments, but uh, the book really goes into, it's a, for me, it was reading it, I could feel that sense the pain of, of the circumstances of losing a child. And it's something that I have written about and unfortunately kind of been drawn into the whole situation as well as an author of a book. My title of my book was Abomination, Devil Worship, and Deception in the West Memphis Three Murders, which I published uh, in 2014. And uh, so it was, uh, it, was, it was really something else for me to read that book, but I'm really glad that these two have taken time to tell, tell their story and also tell about how this book came to be and about the contents of the book. So Vicki and Terry, are you there? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, good. Terry, can you hear me? I can hear you. Awesome. Well, maybe to get started for people who don't know uh, your names or, or haven't heard the background you started, maybe uh, you can start, Terry, and then Vicki is tell a little bit about your background and how you came about to write this excellent book, Box Full of Nightmares. Well, my name is, is Terry, and uh, you know, we lost a son back in 1993 in West Memphis. Him and his two buddies come up, found dead, and you know, and it's just been—it's been a tough life to live, and it's been one that we're determined to keep on living. So, you know, we've had there's been several twists come about in this case, you know, and but you know, it, it's this person saying one thing, this person saying another. So as I noticed all this, I decided. You know, I'm going to keep a box full of journals. And that's what I've done. You know, I've done this for years, and I'm still doing it. Because there's a lot of other things still happening. Okay? Uh, so together, you know, with the different events happening, and with the journaling, and the reason it took me so long, because it's, it's really been a hard thing to do, to keep up with, and to, you know, put it into a story. So as we, you know, as the years went on, you know, it, it took a while and uh, I was approached by my cousin, Vicki, and she asked if she could, you know, do this for me. And, you know, so together, you know, we come up with different things, different ideas, and, and Vicki has become the author of this book. Awesome. And Vicki, when did you guys start uh, start the process of uh, writing the book? Well, I approached him in 2005 at a family reunion. And it took us about a year from the family reunion and moving forward before we actually decided to do anything. Uh, Terry had to give it a lot of thought. Was he ready? Was it ready? I think there were some considerations, you know, as far as some movies coming out and things. We wanted to see how that played out. Um, 
and we worked on it really hard for I don't know three or four years and then we had a standstill and all together I rewrote the book a total of three times before the publisher accepted it the first time I sent it in the publisher said uh, said that wasn't thick enough didn't have enough words didn't have enough story didn't have enough anything it just wasn't enough so I brought it back and I started working on it again and trying to supplement it and I resubmitted it and I had written it the first time all from Terry's point of view. There was no indication that anybody wrote it except Terry, you know. So I sent it back and the editor and publisher said, we can't take this with you as the author because it's written all in first person, you know, it looks like Terry wrote it. So it came back and sat on my desk for, I don't know, 18 months and I was asleep one night and. When I woke up the next morning, I said, I know how to fix the book. And then the third time, still, it took a year from the time I submitted the rewrite before they actually published it. So it was it was quite a process and working back and forth with Terry on phone and email. And he came to my house a lot. We went to West Memphis a couple of times. It was just, it was a big process. Gotcha. And uh, it was just, what was the date of publication on Amazon? It was just within the last two months or was it April 2nd April 2nd right so very recent and uh, you said that it's broken the top 100 in your category of I think it was crime memoirs correct yes a couple of days ago last week it hit top 100 super excited 96 I believe to be exact but still in there (laughs) awesome so once the uh, book kind of came together what uh, you've done some interviews but Maybe you can talk about how you really kind of dealt with this very painful event that took place on May 5th of 1993. Maybe maybe the, the thing we can talk about, Terry, is what your life was like before that event. Well, before uh, May the 5th, you know, I was just a working man, a family man. Uh, took care of my obligations and, you know, come out of a family of a working family. And, you know, just kind of carried on that tradition, you know, and I left a, a, a biz, a family business where we had, I believe it was about 32 uh, franchise catfish restaurants that my dad started, you know, and I just didn't think I was a catfish man. So I uh, moved out of that into moving into West Memphis. You know, and I think I moved there in 1987, if I remember right. And, you know, just started a a life there. You you come from a minister's family, right, with brothers and sisters, correct? I did. Uh, Dad was a a Pentecostal preacher. And we had, I had two brothers and one sister. And you kind of described it in the book as kind of an idyllic uh, upbringing. Would you agree with that? Well, uh, you know, I think they set down some good standards for us to live by. And if you learned them, well, I think it kind of helps you when you need it. Gotcha. And uh, Stevie was a stepson, correct? You raised him from when he was a year and a half old. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah. And um, so the, the the 
biological father is still around, right? His name is also Stephen Branch. Is that right? His name it is, and he's over in Arkansas somewhere. Gotcha. And how did you meet? Uh, how did you? And you also have other children, right? So other than him, you had an older son and a younger daughter, right? I do have one. Gotcha. And how did you meet your wife at that time, Pam? I met Pam. Uh, I had a, one of the franchise restaurants of my dad's in Blyville, Arkansas. And I bought that franchise. Okay. And I hired Pam's sister to come work for me. And she kept indicating that she had a sister that she'd like to, you know, for me to put to work as a waitress. And, and finally I did. And that's how I met Pam. Gotcha. And so, um, how many years apart were her and Steve and Steve? How many years apart, years apart. in their age? Yes. I'm not sure about that. No. Okay. Gotcha. And maybe, I mean, your whole world changed after the boys went missing that night. Uh, maybe Vicki wants to talk about that as how, how that whole situation developed on May 5th, 1993. I'm sorry. Could you repeat that last, the question? Well, I was just trying, you know, I just was saying, trying to think about how Terry's life changed after this event, how it changed irrevocably really. And in the book, you, you really do repeat that theme about how his life was never really going to be the same after the disappearance of uh, the three boys. Well, I didn't keep up with Terry a lot before it happened, although, you know, cousins, you kind of know what's going on, and it was well before the days of social media. But when I remember of him before, he uh, he worked hard. They played hard. Uh, we, you know, he just had a pretty normal life. And after May of 93... He, we heard, you know, through the family and stuff, how they were dealing with the murder. And then there was a big wall of where it was kind of all behind them. I mean, there were a lot of years that I guess they were kind of, I mean, they, they'd lost a child. But to the rest of the world, things kind of evened out. And then in, I think, 2007 is... Uh, when, well, after all the Paradise Lost movies or documentaries came out in 2007, when they uh, found the DNA that matched, you know, half of West Memphis or more, then things in Terry's life really started going downhill again with this. And I think a lot of the book really deals with mostly 2007 on and how much he was harassed and people jumping on that bandwagon of the Terry did it. Um, or Terry done it, the Terry done it club. Yeah. The Terry done it club. <laughs> and so maybe we can talk about that because I know about the West Memphis three movies. I saw the first one was 1996, which if you watch it at the very end, it pretty much, they, they it looks like echoes. The second one I think was done in 2000 or 2001 where Eccles and Baldwin 100% are convinced that uh, John Mark Byers, who was the step-parent of another one of the boys, did it. And they say that conclusively on that documentary, that they're 100% sure. 
And then something happened in between that one. And there, there also that, that documentary involved people who were sympathetic from Los Angeles. So it showed that this, this case was morphing, not unlike other prominent cases in the public eye today. So you see this, that the West Memphis Three is also part of this current of retrying cases in the public domain or in the court of public opinion. And really the third one was when they really went after Terry. And this is 15 years after the event when Terry, the night of the crime, went three times to the police office, officer's station, wondering what's going on, when he's seen by multiple people, uh, constantly out looking to know what's going on. So there's no hint in any of the case records or any really any of the files from 1993 to 2007 of any, in, even an iota of questioning whether Terry was involved. in Terry, you went to all the trials, correct? I did. We had so, two trials. Two trials, right. So that was another thing that people don't key into about these cases is that they were, Jesse Miss Kelly's trial was separated from Baldwin and Eccles. So they were tried separately by two different juries of 12 and convicted unanimously. So, you know, there was really no doubt. And now since 2007, it's been 10 years of this really unquenchable Terry did it. And I think it's all the power of PR and maybe we can talk about that. But how did that start for you, Terry? How did this new kind of uh, blame Terry thing, how did that, uh, you talk about it in the book, but maybe you can talk about it here, is how did that start and how did that affect you? Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Okay. It, was, it popped up, said Zoom was muted for some reason. Anyway, uh, this I'm going to say around 2007 when... You know, I was being harassed and by the uh, Ron Lax and Rachel Geyser crew that was investigators for the defense. And they was stalking. I, I called it stalking, but they were going out of their way to, you know, question me, question my neighbors, say things about me to my neighbors. Then all of a sudden, uh, you know, I go down to meet with him at his office and because I wouldn't do what he wanted me to do, Ron Lax, I'm talking about. He he told me, he looked at me, he said, I'm going to sick the dogs on you. That's exactly what he told me. And next thing you know, here comes John Douglas rolling into town, XBI or FBI ex-profiler. Okay, he comes, rolls into town. I meet with him. The first meeting, I thought it was a pretty good meeting. You know, he seemed like a sensible man. I didn't know he was profiling me at the time. But anyway, I was just me. I answered his questions, you know, and it, it goes on. And then it starts hitting the media, the newspapers. Uh, the PR firm done mailed something to everybody. And from that day on, back in 2007, it's been just one thing after another where they had picked on me and, and quit and won't quit. And they won't leave me alone. Still today, they still bugging me about it and, and some of my family. And I still see it on the uh, social media too. It's always, there's always somebody saying, you know, there's the DNA of Terry Hobbs, which they've never proven conclusively is yours. They've said that it's consistent, but it's also consistent with 7% of the population, which they found the defense, you know, basically caved to an Alford plea four months before 
the evidentiary hearing where could, they could have proven that it was legit, but it's really much more meaningful in the court of public opinion than in a court of law. It doesn't prove that you were there or even that you were involved in the trial when, like I said, nobody saw you muddy, but there was a whole family that saw Eccles close to the crime muddy and also testified about that in court. Um, but when you met with John Douglas, you wrote in the book that you thought you were going to meet with just Diane Holt at a hotel and all of a sudden he was there. Is that true? Right. He was there. That was our second meeting. Okay. Uh, and in that second meeting, I get up and I walk out. And as I'm walking down, I get up because I already seen when I first walked in and sat down, I just, I got to looking around. I'm thinking this is not right. And then all of a sudden they start attacking me. I could tell this was not the same tone that they used on the first meeting that we had. I get up and walk out. As I'm walking down the hallway, they're standing in the hall yelling at me. You come back here. You come back here. I just keep on walking. Wow. That's amazing. So at that time, John Douglas was being paid by the defense. Is that correct? Correct. And this is like at the 2007 time, there there was, I mean, there were numbers being bandied about that. The, this PR campaign that involved all these celebrities, Johnny Depp and the lady girl from the Dixie Chicks and Henry Rollins. Yeah. And that they raised something like 10 to $20 million. So they were able to have this kind of multi-pronged, multi-faceted attack involving private investigator Ron Lax, who was in the first Paradise Lost and who has passed away, John Douglas, uh, Ronnie Sowery, the PR guy from New York, which was a strange place, and the best, really the best, you know, appellate attorneys and attorneys out there. It's really uh, overwhelming. And then when did they start putting up this, the billboards and all that information looking for the so-called real killer? I'm not sure what year that happened. You know, but if you remember, their reward went from one hundred thousand up to two hundred thousand. Okay, you know, we we tried to call and tell them, you know, who the who we thought was the killer, so we could collect the reward. They wouldn't pay us. <laughs> right, right, well, right. Because you could have made you could have just said, well, the guys who are currently convicted, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, in this case, is remarkable because these guys have been convicted twice. You don't often see that. An Alfred plea is a conviction. It's a guilty conviction. You're allowed to say you're innocent in public, but in any court of law, 100% guilty. So they started really harassing you, and there was online harassment, and people were, like, watching you in strange places. Do you want to talk about that as well? And it's still ongoing to to today. I've had a lot of them, you know, this, I mean, out of the blue. I've had a couple uh, retired detectives from New York City show up at my, at my work. Yeah, there's a couple of them guys come down. You know, and everyone that has come to, to visit me, I always tell them, and you don't need to convince me. You need to cross that bridge, go over and convince the West Memphis Police Department. And evidently, they don't know where the bridge is, never made it over there. And, you know, went on about their way. Right. That's interesting. Like they, uh, the police are still convinced they got the right perpetrators. Gitchell, who was the original detective was still around. As far as I know, you were in contact with him, correct? Yes, sir. Um, I I would like to say that 
the paradise okay you mentioned paradise two and paradise three paradise three really didn't happen until john mark byers jumped ship and started saying terry did it when he joined the west memphis three group that's when a big bunch of the shift happened and then on paradise three which really points fingers a lot at terry i went with terry and met uh bruce and joe up in North Arkansas, and I heard a lot of the things that they asked him and what they said to him. And then, of course, with the power of editing, uh, it came out totally different. You know, they they really edited it to make Terry look like he admits to being guilty. For people, and, sorry to interrupt, but for people who don't know, who was Bruce and Joe? Uh, they they were the producers. Uh, of all the Paradise Lost documentaries. Right, so it's Bruce, Joe Berlinger, and Bruce Sanofsky. Yes, and they were up for uh, an Oscar when the Terry, uh, when that third Paradise Lost was coming out. So they actually had some delay in there trying to get, you know, their nomination in because of that. Um, also, I interviewed a retired uh state trooper a few weeks ago and this is still kind of in the works but he indicated to me that he used to transport jesse Skelly to and from the trials and and to jail and he said a lot of the things that they didn't release to the public jesse Skelly would sit in the police car and talk about things that were at the crime scene that he shouldn't have known so from the police standpoint, they said there never was any doubt who was guilty. But of course, with all the 800 hours of, of trial hours and things that they have, they only release the parts that help the, the guys look like they're innocent. Right. So Sanofsky and Berlinger were there recording this whole thing. And, and yeah, I yes. mean, they're very I'm selective editing, selective hours of video. Right which is never released, right? So Berlinger is still around because he just put out the movie that made Ten Bundy look like uh, right. Fireboy. So, you know, and I saw some of those earlier, he was doing a press thing. And he's like, oh yeah, I'm into evil. I can't remember verbatim what he said, but he was sounding really strange, like nothing that you would want to really say he was saying, in my opinion. But um, I know people who were, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Netflix regret. Uh, I don't want to go into detail, but they didn't like that movie. They didn't like the fact that they even, well, yeah, there's real problems with that movie. So, uh, yeah, so those movies and their editing, I mean, I for me, when I looked at this whole case, I think the distortion of the case in the public eye, I think, in my opinion, can firmly rest on HBO and Berlinger and Sanofsky is really, that's really where it started. Would you guys agree with that? We do. I don't know how they weaseled their way into the first trial, but they did. And I think you wrote in the book, Terry, I wrote this quote down. It was, this was the first of many assurances and promises they would break before all was said and done. So they had made you, originally made you promises and you felt like or believe that a lot of those promises were broken. Can you talk to that? Oh, they did. Yeah, we we asked different things, and they would they would tell us, yes, we will. And then we get when they go back to New York and you know do their editing, uh, we get phone calls. Well, we're not able to do that. Our producers won't you know 
allow us to and blah, blah, blah. This, you know, and you could tell that, you know, you was being lied to. And there was, I mean, there were, there were definitely, I don't know what the first one, but they were paying people for their involvement in two and three. Is that right? Or was it just three? Well, they offered us money to do two. We told them we didn't want to do, do no part of no part of it. So they told us that they give Mark a thousand dollars to get out there and act like he acted. And that was in one, right? Where he had a gun and was shooting away and stuff like that. That was in two. Two. Okay. Sorry. I don't remember. Yeah. Um, so like that whole, I think that's what really created that kind of circus atmosphere is that those films and their inability to just make a clear case of what really happened based upon the court transcripts. It just was like, they were, yeah, it was really crazy. So, um, 2007, you're up against this big onslaught. I mean, you did have people who supported you, correct? I did. Still do. Still do. Yeah, but, you know, it's, uh, when you, you're talking millions of dollars worth of money, Peter Jackson come along, and everybody knows the story about him. You know, it's just more money. He's a, what is that? I think he's a billionaire. Right. So, I heard that he financed or mostly financed um, Eccles' documentary, West of Memphis, right? That's where I've, I've heard that. Yeah. Um, and I mean, you had, you still kind of, I mean, one of the interesting aspects of your, of the book is you're kind of, you're still have, you still have faith. You still go to church. You still have a church family. And that seems to be a real sanctuary for you. Is that correct? Church has been good. It, it has. Cause I've, you know, before, now you may not know this, but before, right at 2007, I was going to, uh, a counseling group and when this 2007 broke out all over the airwaves uh, they sent me a letter this uh, counseling group and, and asked me not to come back and you know and that kind of just hit you know I, I, that hurt you know so I, I found a, a church where I went to and we I went to the grief share classes with them uh, several times and you know that's where you learn some things in, inside the grief share classes other other people with the same um, situation the same kind of grief and pain of that you've carried for almost it's like a quarter century now yeah you'd be, you'd be surprised what people grieve over <laughs> I mean that must be very difficult um, Vicki, what, uh, what are your thoughts about a lot of this, this kind of, uh, public acrimony that Terry's had to endure? Well, when, and I'm a member of some of the groups kind of keep an eye on them and I don't say too much, but it seems to be a lot of people just on a bandwagon. They, they don't really have true knowledge or they're roped into that, oh, those boys were convicted because they wore black and listened to rock music without ever really looking at it. And it's like Terry's a likely a likely subject. Um, obviously we all we all have skeletons in our closet and they think those things that Terry has in his past make make him a viable suspect. Well, you know, just because 
I've done something in my past doesn't mean that my future is defined by that. And I think people lose sight of lose sight of that in in trying to find somewhere and someone to blame in order to not blame the three. Gotcha. And uh, <clears throat> they really tried to like get other DNA evidence from you, right, Terry? I remember reading in the book they were trying to take your cigarette butts and stuff like that. Well, when I went down and met with Ron Lax at his at his office, you know, that was one of the questions he that one of the things he wanted from me was my DNA, and I wouldn't give it to him, you know. And he slid a glass down a sixteen foot table at me, and I slid it right back at him, you know, and because I wouldn't wouldn't didn't want to cooperate, and I I seen right then, you know, and I probably shouldn't have went to that meeting. But I seen right then this was no good. You know, he is he's no good, and I didn't want to be a part of this. So, you know, they would come to my home, pick up cigarette butts, you know, out of the ground, inside the house. You know, I guess anything to get their uh, DNA. And there was like a bit. I'm sorry, continue. Terry's never refused to share his DNA with the state, though. He has been very open about doing whatever the state asked of him because he owes the prosecutor, you know, he owes the defense team nothing. Right. And they asked him to come back in during this time of great suspicion and provide his DNA. And you went in, right, Terry? I did. Brent called me and asked me if I would go, Brent Davis. And I said, sure. You know, anything that you ever need from me, let me know. And all of this kind of uh, pressure led up to the release of the three convicts in August of 2011. There was a new prosecutor who agreed to this Alfred plea. What were your thoughts at that time, uh, Terry? Well, I was there when that happened in Jonesboro. And I just thought, you know, I couldn't understand why the new DA didn't want to... uh, go ahead and fight it. But uh, at the same time, the defense approached him, you know, so it was more of the defense not wanting to go to battle with the state. And because in the Alfred plea, it says that we have enough evidence to convict. Right. And they signed on the dotted line, all three of them, Baldwin, Eccles, and Miss Kelly all signed that they pled guilty again to first degree murder. So with the best lawyers, so they can't even make a, a Sixth Amendment plea of like insufficiency of counsel. You guys have the best lawyers in the country, the most money, and you still pled guilty instead of going back to trial, which should make the public or people question the validity or the efficacy of their evidence. So, well, um, and they say they did that so they didn't prosecute or you know put Damien to death. But if you look at how many people in the state of Arkansas has actually been put to death. In the past, the chances of that happening in the near future, like they keep claiming, was slim to none. Well, the way that they played in the public, too, is that they, they, the, the, the state offered that to prohibit them from suing them on an innocence project type suit where the state would be liable for millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's the way that it's, it's played in public. But those aren't really the facts of how that whole Alford plea kind of came out, came into, uh, came into being, but it wasn't, you know, they, I think that Steve branch also was there when they were released, objecting to it. 
Um, I think that uh, the Moors have always been against the release, both of the Moor parents um, and buyers. I don't, really don't know what he came. I know that his wife passed away, um, but yeah, just 2011. So, and even, you know, in uh, this post-release, you know, supposedly they're looking for the real perpetrators and, uh, you know, they've had, now it's been eight years, I think, since they've been out. How's that going? Well, they put all their eggs in west of Memphis because I guess they didn't want to put them in the court system. <laughs> so west of Memphis is the doc, so-called documentary. Amy Berg uh, came out with, when, when did that come out? Was that 2016? I don't remember, 2014? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But there's been another movie, one that supposedly Ron Lacks is the, was the key player was Devil's Knot based upon Mara Leveritz, in my opinion, poorly researched book um, that wasn't really conclusive at all. It had A-list Hollywood actors, but. Uh, and it you... didn't really follow her book because if you read uh, her book, De The Devil's Track, it's all about John Mark Byers. Right. That's right. I remember that. I have to read it again. What did you think about that depiction of Ron Lacks, uh, Terry? And did you get to see Devil's Knot? Did you watch that? I, I went, now we, some, I think we bought the movie just to watch it and see what it was about. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't impressed by none of it. <laughs> all right, Terry, or I'll ask this to you, Vicki. Did you, um, during this time when all that money was around, did you ever feel that anything underhanded was taking place or people were being paid off or being bought off? Well, I felt like it did. Um, I, I thought right after the billboards came out and there was all the money that the two boys came out with the Hobbs family secret. I felt like the money was directly connected to that. Even though when I spoke to one of those boys, he adamantly, uh, claimed that they did not get any money. I did not believe him. Plus, in the interview with Amanda, she did state that, you know, they were giving people money to and leading them into questions that they, they wanted the answers to. And I asked her, did they ask her to say specific things? And she said no, but they would ask the question in such a way that, you know, leads you to the answer. And of course, when the answers were right is when the money would come out. Interesting. That's interesting. So they asked leading questions to certain right. things. Gotcha. And uh, um, you, the title of the book is Box Full of Nightmares. And that what is that reference? And it's a theme that kind of goes through this whole book from beginning to end. Can you talk well, a little bit about that? tossed around a lot of titles and the uh, publisher actually came up with that one. And because I actually had a box of Terry's journals here, he, he came up with the play on, on words. If you look at the cover, I know it's hard to see, but the things that were in the box or and the box is what's all spread around on the cover of the book. Gotcha. But it kind of alluded to the actual box he kept his, his journals in. Right. So that was something that he was continually writing, still says he's writing and still kind of writing letters to people and writing things about uh, all the pain and trauma and suffering and things like that. Um, 
what's happened, Terry, since the book's come out? What's your, any, have you gotten any feedback, any hate mail? What, what's the general kind of consensus? Well, I've, I've got feedback from people all around the world. You'd really be surprised. And a lot of people say we have been waiting on to hear from you. And I get emails that just blows my mind sometimes what people say. And, you know, sometimes I get off and I might even tear up a little bit because I, you know, I didn't know. And I kind of felt like it, but I really didn't know that people were wanting to hear something. And we're, so most of the emails are sympathetic? Yes. Yeah, people, they were, you know, they tell me how strong of a person I am to endure this. And they tell me what it has done in their life to encourage them. You know, and it's really some really good feedback. And they're all, most of them have been messages, messages, emails. And it's just unbelievable at the response that I'm getting. Oh, great. That's awesome. Yeah, because like when I was reading the book, the thing that came to my mind was like the book of Job, you know, just like you still kept your faith, but all the suffering through all those years, you know. Yeah, it, it seemed like it just, it won't quit, you know, and I don't understand people why they have to act like they do. But, you know, at the same time, there's probably more people out there that's excited about seeing the book come out. Well, here's a question that just came to my mind. Damien Eccles was on Dr. Oz two days ago. Why haven't they invited you or Vicky, Vicky on there to tell your side of the story? You have a book. He has a book. Yeah. I haven't read none of those. I don't intend to. You know, I'm just trying to live and survive all of this. And there's a group out there called the New Beginning who is, you know, they're into this now. And they're they're doing it again. So they're they're trying to tag you as the Terry Dunnett again. That's happening. They are. Hmm. Yeah, they really are. And have you and follow, have you followed this whole Bob Ruff investigation for on what's commonly known as truth and justice? Have I done what now? Have you followed the podcast Truth and Justice? No, but he's he's also part of the New Beginning. So oh, Bob Ruff is part of New Beginning. Yes, sir. I didn't know that. And didn't he yeah. ask you to be on his new show? He asked. I, I bought him dinner here in Memphis one time, where he flew in to meet with me. We went out to eat, and he asked if I would uh, do some video for his whatever he's doing and I told him no but he has, he's got a hold of Ryan if you remember Ryan is Christopher's brother mm -hmm. uh, Ryan Clark and he's been in touch with Ryan he, he got a hold of Dominique uh, and they did an interview and read some video in the same day here in Memphis how long ago was that uh, at the end of last year because he yeah, says that some, some kind of video presentation is coming out at the end of summer. So that's why he says. Um, what was your opinion of Dominique Tier? I never, I wasn't there. I didn't go. I, I wasn't there for that. Okay. But you saw her when you back in 1993 and 94 when the trials were. Do you remember that? 
we do. I do remember her, and you know, she was probably just a young girl that, you know, I don't know, just a young young lady. I don't. I didn't pay no attention to her. Because I mean, I'm just kind of more interested. Like when I was looking through the case files, the occultism and Crowley and all this stuff really popped out to me. You said you had been to Stonehenge. I think you said you went with Vicky, or you either went alone, and that was supposedly where a lot of this dark stuff happened. Do you remember or want to talk about Stonehenge? Well, I did go. Pam's dad, uh, Jackie Senior, and he got into this uh, going around. He wanted to find these kids doing all this satanic stuff, you know, uh, with the animal stuff. So I would, he'd come down to West Memphis, pick me up. He lived in Blyville, Arkansas. So he made an 80 mile trip, pick me up at our home, and we'd ride around to places I never even thought of. You know, and he, he knew, he knew where Stonehenge was. I didn't. And I went out there with him. I don't, you know, he was just looking, you know, and he would do videos. And so, you know, none of that stuff meant nothing to me back then. You know, we was dealing with what we was dealing with at the time. Does it, does it mean anything to you now? No. no. Did he, uh, did you see anything? Cause I thought you said in the book that there were like, animal remains or anything? Do you remember anything like that? There was. Uh, they had their graffiti all plastered all over every stuff. And, and there's a few things, a few bones you might see laying around. You know, but I didn't know what all that meant. It didn't mean nothing to me. But you said in the book when you were on at Robin Hood Hills that you sensed something really dark and evil there on the night of the murders. Is that true? Do you remember that? It is true. Yes, sir, I remember that. I don't know what happened, uh, but as I veered off down this little path, you know, it's something stopped me. And I don't know what happened, but something stopped me, and I couldn't go any further. And I stood there and looked around, didn't see nothing, but I just felt like I couldn't go any further forward. Like a presence or something, something evil was there. It just seemed like it, I don't know, I, I wasn't supposed to go any further. Gotcha. And uh, you've also had not just people, but other, these. you've just had this whole experience of decade, at least a decade of these kind of amateur sleuths snooping around all the time, not just Ron Lax, but you told the story of somebody who came all the way from Australia. <laughs> yeah. Hey, mate. <laughs> I like their accent. That's funny. And they come and ask you questions and try to figure it out, right? Yeah. Actually, one of them moved in with Mark Myers. Oh, interesting. One of the guys did and stayed with him until he figured out that he was in the wrong camp. Interesting. And he actually actually went on Facebook and apologized to me. And, and he wanted it on Facebook so everybody could see because they had been tearing him up. Interesting. Do you remember his name or where, where that uh, that statement can be found? Stu Fox. Stu Fox. Yeah. Okay. Because, I, you know, I had never heard that. I was really grateful just for you to I tell your you. stories because as somebody who studied this case and went through all the case files independently, and we never talked before I published my book, right? 
Uh, okay. Do you remember right. me and you talking? We never talked, right? Great. So when I went through everything, all the stuff that you added was really helpful. You know, there's just so many details. And that was one of the real excellent parts of the book is all these, just the details that you you guys were able to leave on paper, I think, which is that's, why I said it. That's why I did the journaling. You know, at the time, it was easy to write it down because, you know, it was it happened. And not only did this happen, there are police reports. I'm, I did make some police reports about some of these things that these people were doing. And they're, they're at the Memphis Police Department today. You also called the FBI, right? I sure did. When John Douglas came through town, I got a hold of the FBI. And I wanted to know what they thought about him. Interesting. What, what did they say about him? Did they say anything? They weren't really happy with him. Oh, interesting. Seriously. Well, I yeah. wrote, you know, I wrote an article that's online that people are bored about how his analysis of the West Memphis Three is factual, factually incorrect. And that's called John Douglas and the West Memphis Three. And you can see you just missed basic facts, like elementary child level third grade facts that you just left out. So you wonder why those omissions are there. And uh, there's a picture of him and Eccles that I think is very telling if people can find because Eccles is sitting at a table with his wife and they have a thing of tarot cards with this kind of very, this guy that supposedly has a great reputation, John Douglas. And Damien Eccles has got his arm up and he's flashing it right at John Douglas's face. And it has a black dragon tattoo, which is a really heavy-duty occult tattoo. And John Douglas just smiling away, just couldn't be, you know, couldn't be bothered at all. Just didn't know. He never talked about that stuff. So, Well, um, on the Dr. Oz show, uh, Echoes did talk about John Douglas. He said how he was very kind and he was so happy to meet him. And that in the absence of his families being so poor, they couldn't come and visit with him. The celebrities and John Douglas became his his family. Wow, that's amazing! Wow. Um. Yeah, and you've had kind of a run into uh, Terry with one of the celebrity supporters, Natalie Maines from the uh, Dixie Chicks, correct? Oh, uh, we did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. I don't know why, you know, she wanted to single me out, pick on me like she did, but, you know, she did what she did, and there was some attorney got a hold of me and says, let us do this for you. Well, I didn't know, you know, anything about uh, lawsuits. You know, I never did done them in my life, and I learned a great deal by this, and and but in the at the end of the day, you know, she learned to quit taking on people. I think, and we moved on with our life. And I, I posted on on my Facebook page the other day for you know that group's getting back together. I think you know they had broke up for a spell, but I think now that they're reuniting, and you know, hopefully we'll see where they they do this. Right, so the Dixie Chicks are getting back together. One of the things that I haven't seen is these celebrities kind of going out in public, uh, vaunting for the West Memphis Three. I don't really see that happening as much recently. Do you guys have any idea why that is? 
Well, it probably got in her pocketbook. <laughs> I, met, I remember their attorney, Mr. Davidson, you know, he's, he's one of them high dollar attorneys. He probably told him to leave people alone. <laughs> right. And uh, let's see. The guy's name was, uh, you said, and you wrote in the book, which is interesting, you said that Depp went to the Obama White House to like on behalf of the West Memphis Three, is that correct? I don't. I've never heard that. Johnny Depp. Do you guys recall that part of the book? No. No. Okay. Because that was written in there, and I know Depp was at the White House, but I was just hoping to confirm that. Um, and uh, how did Terry? How did Lisa O'Brien? How did you get in touch with her, and how did she write the intro? Well, she came to West. Uh, she came to West Memphis one time in Memphis, and uh, we met up. I think she, she was with Sean Wheeler, if I remember right, and that's how we met up. I'm not sure uh, what that's there, but we went down to meet with them. Gotcha. And she uh, she was with. She actually debated Bob Ruff about the West Memphis three case of people are interested in looking, finding that, I think you can just type in her name, Lisa O'Brien and Bob Ruff, um, find out about that, uh, that discussion. Um, is there anything else you guys would like to cover? We're probably at about an hour. Is there anything that I missed or anything you'd like to add or either like to, either of you like to make a closing statement? Well, I'm, I might say this, there's still things happening. And there's been things happening, some big things since the, uh, the well, since the past two or three years. There's been some big, serious things happen, you know, with people out there on that side doing things to this family. So, and we have journaled them, and the journaling continues, and what happens one day. Gotcha. And uh, anything you would like to add, Vicki? Um, no. If people would like a signed copy of the book, uh, I have copies that were signed by Terry here. They can contact me directly, okay. and uh, we'll, we'll be happy to get signed copies out to them. If they order off Amazon, of course, they won't, they won't be signed. What, uh, how can they contact you? Uh, they can go to uh, vicki.edwards.author at gmail.com. Uh, follow me on Twitter at SV Edwards or uh, my Facebook page, Vicki Edwards author, and uh, they can hit me up any of those places. Right. And the book is available and there's not a Kindle version yet, but that's expected somewhere on the sometime on the horizon. Is that correct? I am told it's on the way. I don't have a ETA, an ETA on that. Gotcha. And here's the, the cover of the book. Again, box full of nightmares, Terry Hobbs's personal memoirs on the West Memphis Three murders by Vicki Edwards. Is there anything else you guys would like to add before we wrap it up? Buy the book, enjoy the read, and use some of it in your life. Good point. Excellent point. There's a lot of great information here. It's a very superb book. It's essential reading for people who want to understand the West Memphis Three. Highly recommended. Terry Hobbs, Vicki Edwards, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Awesome. Good night. Thank you. Thank you.